Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back to the Prospect Podcast. I'm Ellen Halliday, Deputy Editor at Prospect, and today I'm joined from the United States by Samuel Moyne, a Professor of Law and History at Yale, and author of many books, including Liberalism Against Itself, Cold War Intellectuals, and The Making of Our Times. Sam, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Now, you're here not to discuss that book directly, although some of the ideas may um, have a bearing on today's conversation, We're going to talk about a piece that you wrote for the latest issue of Prospect. It's out online and in print from the 6th of December. It's called America's Undoing. And in that piece, you explore what's happened to American power since the end of the Cold War through the lens of the Ukraine war and Israel's bombardment and ground invasion of Gaza. So maybe that's where we should start um, with the core idea of your argument. Now, we've, we've all been following the violence in Israel closely, the horrific Hamas attacks of the 7th of October and the revelations since about um, about the violence of that day, as well as, of course, Israel's bombardment and ground invasion that's entering a new phase now um, in southern Gaza. You've been watching this too, but you've been thinking about what these events tell us about American power. So how has America acted since the 7th of October and and why is it America's power that has interested you? Well, in the first instance, I'm an American citizen, but I think those of us in the transatlantic space um, have a duty to think not just about what's best in this or that place, but about what our powerful states should do in response. And the premise of the article I wrote for you is basically that um, our leaders, Joseph Biden, in my case, uh, leading all the leaders, uh, tried, if you like, to get a a kind of Cold War band back together again. Um, They framed the conflict in the Middle East around the defense of freedom in the face of barbarity and evil. And the, the point of the piece is to say, actually, that maneuver worked in Ukraine, at least for a while, Um, maybe because the framework fit the facts better. But as the events in Israel-Palestine unfolded, very quickly it became hard for Biden and others to sort of sustain the idea that just moral clarity is all that's required to think through the situation. And the results, I think, have involved a lot of pushback to these leaders because ordinary people, especially young people, reject the idea that 
the defense of freedom is what's really at stake in our policy towards this new bloodshed. America has always been a strong ally of Israel. So in a way, that that response is entirely as you would have expected from Washington. Has that initial very kind of strong expression of support changed at all in what's now almost two months since that, that Hamas attack? I think it's hard to say because you and I have access to the public statements of Biden and Antony Blinken, the Secretary of State, and Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor. It's very hard to know exactly what's being said by them in private to their Israeli counterparts, let alone against in response to kind of regional, um, you know, counterparts they they meet. Um, and and yet it doesn't seem as if much has changed. The the band that Biden and Blinken and others tried to get back together was was in particular, as you say, of the very long standing kind of carte blanche support that the United States has lent to Israel, kind of come what may, no matter what government is leading it, uh, even though it's trended right for a half century. And yet, I think we've seen some adjustment to pushback, um, including fears among liberals in my country that, um, you know, Muslims in the United States are now, you know, a very important voters, notably in the state of Michigan. But as far as I can tell, what we've seen is kind of from the initial couple of weeks, a kind of retreat to the position that of course, Israel has its right to self-defense. It's unlimited or unrestricted, but there may be, you know, moral constraints, even legal constraints in how Israel fights its war. Um, and so nothing's changed in the sense that as far as we can tell publicly, no government in the transatlantic space is kind of putting actual conditions um, on Israel's policies, um, but they are, let's say, issuing sterner warnings about the need to conduct the war humanely or within the constraints of so-called international humanitarian law. Do you think America has issued such a warning? Uh, for sure. At, it, I mean, as, as of the time when Blinken began noticing the kind of fissuring of support uh, among Americans and uh, really across the world for the blank check policies with which Biden started after October 7th, he, he really did immediately begin to say, well, there, 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 are cons there, there are constraints in international law. They may not be about whether Israel can pursue self-defense as it defines it, but those constraints are in terms of, you know, how many civilians can die and how much caution is due um, kind of civilian life. And, and there have been, you know, increasingly stern warnings. So we've seen a kind of interesting pattern because in, in the, its own war on terror, the United States also has asserted an unlimited or unrestricted right to self-defense. But over time, it kind of made that war more sustainable by promising even devising policy to kill fewer civilians with, for example, drone weapons. 
Um, and so th- this seems to be the nature of the warning. But Blinken in recent days, as the invasion of southern Gaza has begun in earnest, has been very clear and stern about the need not to have as many as the 13 or, or so thousand civilians die in 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 the north in now that the the south is being uh you know invaded so is there a sense in washington that america's as you call it sort of blank check policy of very strong support for israel that that's doing damage to america's moral authority in the world i don't think yet um i think they they have not gotten the memo, if you like, out in the country, it's clear that um, there's uh, people are upset in and in large numbers support a ceasefire rather than just a, let's call it a humanization of the military uh, campaign. Uh, and in Washington, as I note in the piece, the first people to get concerned uh, about kind of broader public opinion, especially the youth vote and the Muslim vote, were. Biden's own 2024 campaign staffers. But I don't think we can say that the Washington, D.C. elites have proved all that receptive to the pushback they're getting in all the marches, in all the you know open letters and petitions that people have been producing. So there may be a cost to how long it's taking for Biden and his staff to adjust beyond just calling for a a less brutal uh, and damaging form of the war. In your piece, you you quote Fintan O'Toole, who wrote that the the President Biden's response to the Hamas attacks of October 7th was to fuse the wars in Israel and Ukraine into a single struggle. Now, you mentioned a little bit of that, but can you tell us more about, about what that meant? How does America define that struggle? So O'Toole is is right, and and in in a way, it's been very prominent in Biden's rhetoric, in particular, that there's not just an analogy between Ukraine and Israel, but they're actually part of the same struggle. And then the question is, what is that struggle? How persuasive is Biden in making a case for the analogy? or even the kind of unity of these two situations. And the basic case, you know, in in a, a speech the, the day after October 7th, and then again in a Washington Post opinion piece uh, a couple of weeks ago, is that, well, these are democracies, um, and they're, they're afflicted, as the United States was on September 11th, 2001, by a kind of unintelligible malevolence that, ultimately aims to topple democracy. Um, and this fits with the kind of larger kind of branding of Biden's foreign policy, which is the defense of democracy against its enemies, including obviously at home with Donald Trump having, uh, you know, claimed to have won the election and then running again in 2024. And the 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 trouble i think is that this analogy is is you know faulty to many of us but in the piece i argued that there actually are some parts to the analogy that hold true uh, just not the ones that biden is mentioning because um 
in in both cases you see a kind of attempt to rescue American foreign foreign policy from the dire straits it's experienced through the end of the war on terror and in the era of Donald Trump and if you like restore America's traditional uh, or the West traditional Cold War posture of defending the free world against its enemies in a kind of morally pure cause. And the the analogy, I think, is actually that in both cases, Ukraine and Israel, it seems to be failing to work. The, the rhetoric is, is, is being rejected. And, and I think the interesting thing is that it just took a rather long time in Ukraine uh, for it to reach a kind of stalemated war in which people are now willing to think um, beyond the kind of Cold War framing of the initial days and months of that conflict, whereas it was almost instantaneous in the Israel-Palestine case that a lot of people, a lot more people began to reject the kind of freedom and its enemies framing that Biden issued in the first hours after the attack. I mean, as you say, too, complicated examples, but many people would see great differences between the Palestinians and people in Gaza and Putin's Russia, which is perhaps the comparison there. So lots of people would find those two examples to be worlds apart um, in terms of their incentives. If one believes uh, that Putin's you know, reason for invading Ukraine was to, let's say, make the Russian empire great again uh, and to revive its old territorial ambitions already revived in the era of the Soviet Union. It's just very hard to see that as Hamas's cause or that of the Palestinian uh, people generally, um, whom Hamas claims to represent, because the traditional narrative, almost unavoidable at this point, is that far from being an imperialist force, they're oppressed people, victim of, you know, empires back to the Ottomans and, you know, your country's you know, mandate before uh, the, the, the kind of American era in which the Palestinian people were denied self-determination, you know, in so many ways and through so many phases. After the break, we'll talk more about the consequences of American foreign policy in a domestic context. But before we do, we've got a great offer to tell you about. If you take out an annual digital subscription to Prospect, you'll enjoy one month's free digital access to all of the magazine's best long reads, commentary and cultural criticism. Sign up now at prospectmagazine.co.uk slash one month free. Media Confidential is a brand new weekly podcast that takes you behind the headlines. When the media goes dark, democracy is at risk. Monitoring those people that monitor us is vital. Expect revealing, high-profile interviews, in-depth analyses. That's me, Alan Rusbridger. And me, Lionel Barber. Strive to discover the truth behind the clickbait. So follow, like and subscribe to Media Confidential brought to you by Prospect Magazine. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. So coming to that point of America's power, one could argue that both in the Middle East, America's influence remains remains very strong in influencing Israel in the relationships with the Gulf countries. And also that in the Ukraine war, America has contributed a great deal, the greatest contributor of aid and of resources in helping Ukraine to defend against Russian aggression. Has America really failed to, as you say, get the old band back together and show that strength um, of that old American world order? Has it really failed in that? Or is it just has it just not yet succeeded? Well, it is, you know, the old saying, I think apocryphal, we now know of uh, show and lie that, you know, it's impossible to say whether the French Revolution succeeded. It's too soon to tell. Um and of course, it's possible that there will be another spring counteroffensive. Uh, doesn't look like the current Congress in the United States will fund it, um, but perhaps Germany or new NATO members like Finland and probably Sweden, um, which I think have actually transformed far more radically than America, which more kind of revived um, its a kind of its traditional role. Um, and, and yet it does seem like it's a, now a war of position and it will be very difficult to eject Putin. Um, so it, 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 I'm not claiming that necessarily that, um, America is in decline or weak. It's, it's just that it's, it's policies need adjustment in, in view of the, the limits in these two situations of the framing, kind of the rhetorical and the ideological framing it, it, its leaders trotted out to think about, about it. I mean, if, if it had been the case that the counteroffensive succeeded and Putin was ejected back to the 2021 lines or even from Crimea, the 2014 lines of the old state of Ukraine, then I think many would celebrate, and rightly so. I think even even had that happened, it would be very problematic to 
let's say, revive this kind of restorationist hope for an America defending freedom in the Gazan case, just because, as you pointed out, it's just messier and, and, and murkier. But I guess, you know, since it's Biden in the first instance who made this analogy so central to his defense of the new war, then I think he deserves to be judged by the kind of strength of the analogy. And I think what the analogy really shows is that more and more people are unwilling in both cases to kind of allow for this framing to prevail. They see the Ukraine situation, especially now that it's stalemated, as murkier and perhaps in need of some kind of political settlement. And certainly they think the same of this long-term war, which is not new, of Israel and its neighbors, and especially the kind of struggle over Israel-Palestine, of which this is just the latest act. And maybe we need a political solution rather than saying that there's just freedom on one side and evil and barbarity on the other. Sam, I'd like to us to rewind the conversation a little bit and talk about America's journey from 1989 until today. So in the piece you write about the end of the Cold War being this kind of moment where um, you had George Bush uh, Sr. declaring a new world order led by the US and there was perhaps more of a, a sense of a binary world. But in the 30 years since, things have changed dramatically. So can you tell me a bit about how you see that story of a, of the creation of a new world order through to today when America's unable to kind of raise that again. So in the piece, I, I, I do go back and start with this famous new world order speech that George uh, Herbert Walker Bush uh, gave at just at the end of the Cold War and envisioned a, a kind of peaceful world under the auspices of American unilateralism because there was just one superpower left. Um, and it's not really that America's in decline in terms of its power or wealth or that China is a prospective second hegemon, although it's really worth considering, you know, the, the, you know, whether we're in a new cold war situation with China, how credible it is to think in that way. It's more that, you know, I think America's promises in the new order speech just have rung increasingly hollow. The, the, the argument there was that, there would be a new era of, of peace and prosperity. But instead, what we've seen is numerous endless wars that America has kept going. And um, that led, I think, in part to the election of Donald Trump, uh, most notably in backlash to the Iraq war um, or the war on terror generally. But, you know, Biden having kind of withdrawn troops where Trump wasn't allowed to do so from Afghanistan in in the kind of first six months of the Biden administration has now embroiled the United States in two more wars that look relatively endless. And so that's the betrayal I'm concerned about. And it's just not my, you know, it's not just my moral concern about um, these wars and their propriety. It's also that the American people don't believe in this kind of interventionist posture, that, uh, partly because they are seeing less and less uh, for themselves 
the kind of pre peace and prosperity they were promised only more and more need to send arms weaponry even if it's not direct intervention uh, of the Afghanistan or Iraq sort at stake. What kind of evidence is there that tells us Americans don't support that? Well, first and foremost, there's the shocking election of, of Donald Trump in 2016, because the truth is, ever since the Iraq war, um, presidents have run against it uh, to be successful. Uh, Barack Obama ran against Hillary Clinton in 2008 in the Democratic primaries and won in part because she had supported the Iraq war. I think more remarkably, eight years later, Trump ran against fellow Republicans, uh, predicted to, you know, to fail because it was still a, an article of faith in 2008 when Trump announced falsely that he'd never supported the Iraq war and wouldn't have that it, it had been a good thing. And then, more shockingly, he won against Clinton again in the general election. So there's some kind of reservoir there that has to explain why Biden, when he runs in 2020, uh, says, I'm, I'm against endless war too, don't worry. And he tries to participate in this hashtag that had originated on the left that Trump, you know, in with another example of his effrontery, tried to appropriate himself. And then Biden also promised to limit American interventionism. And in fairness, he did withdraw from Afghanistan and he hasn't returned to any big direct intervention. But I do argue in the piece that the kind of corrected version of American liberal interventionism that is restricted to arms and and money it, it it it's not something that's proven sustainable the ukraine war at this point is enormously unpopular for the american people and i think especially among youth and for very different reasons this the blank check support for israel that biden's provided is also unpopular and so the evidence i think is let's call it electoral it has to do with the ordinary people resisting the elites who have tended to lean more interventionist and militaristic than the American people have been willing to allow lately. The coming year is, of course, an important one for the question of American power. For In terms of American elections, we've got the primary starting, I think, in January already. So it's very soon. And this you know, the situation in the Middle East will be front of people's minds. Will U.S. foreign policy, America's involvement there be a key part of those debates, those conversations? Traditionally, in fairness, it's not. Um, and Biden has a lot of other reasons to be frightened of his electoral prospects, just because polls have shown that Trump has the lead, especially in some of these decisive states. It's also fair, as a number of people have pointed out, that if Biden took a very different position that he has on the Middle East, uh, he might gain some voters, but lose a lot more than he gains, uh, just because for many liberals, a kind of default support of the state of Israel is just what they expect and require. Still, it's really important that these the the electorate in general i mean if we look just at the the polls i i i point to in the piece are upset with biden even more uh because of 
the current events there his polls are are tanking even more and there are these you know decisive states like michigan which really have to go biden's way for him to prevail in the general election where a lot of muslims do live and vote and so it's been i think frightening to many of us to see how furious muslim americans are about Biden's policy, and they may hold the election in in their hands to decide one way or the other. You say that that's frightening. What is it about the potential outcome that is is frightening? Well, I don't think even in my occasional moods that try to deflate the notion that Trump is a tyrant on the march didn't prove that way the first time, in spite of the, I think, very scary attempt to you know steal the election in the end um and in in spite of the fact that all things considered trump has as a foreign policy president killed fewer non-americans than any president lately in war still no one would want trump to win uh who thinks about the future of American democracy. It might survive a, a, a second Trump term, but in part because the the liberals are, are kind of in my country in almost a civil war posture about the unacceptability of a second Trump term. That term to me is likely to be dreadful. So, uh, and for the world as well, even if there are occasionally fewer wars when Trump has won, up against his opponents. So I think I'm, I'm with mo- most liberals of my, uh, my kind who really think that we should do everything we can to avoid Trump's victory. Fortunately, in this case, I have independent ethical reasons to think America's making mistakes in foreign policy, but it does, as I argue in the piece, also matter that quite apart from that fact, we, we may be facing an even worse ethical disaster in promoting Trump's electoral prospects in a very kind of blind way that we, we may regret very quickly. Well, Sam, thank you so much for talking us through the ideas behind your piece. Thank you for everything. If you want to read Sam's essay in full, then you can do so by picking up a physical copy of Prospect Magazine, or you can visit our website, prospectmagazine.co.uk. In this month's issue, you'll also find our list of 25 top thinkers for a world on the brink. Visit our site to check them out, and crucially, to vote for the person whose ideas you think will change the world in 2024. 